0: Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. Where should humans inhabit next? The Moon, Mars or further beyond? This month, Apollo astronaut Al Warden and space experts Chris Welch and Stuart Eaves will argue their case for each. Who will win your vote? Oh, now that was a good round of applause. Wow. Well, It puts me to shame. What have I done with my life? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Each of our (laughs) panellists are going to give (coughs) around 20 minutes um, each. They're going to argue whether they think humans should inhabit uh, on the moon, (coughs) Mars, or should travel beyond. And um, once we've heard from everyone, we're going to take a vote. So we're going to use this website, Mentimeter. Um, I don't know if you've used that before, but we're going to use it, and we're going to see what all of you think or who's given the best argument. And you have a chance to ask your questions at the end as well, just to like, make sure that your vote is a good one, OK? Um, so we're going to see who can convince us to leave the Earth and pack up immediately. And um, So we're going to start with Chris, who's going to talk about the moon.
1: OK, thank you. So I'm a professor. I don't sit down and talk. I walk around and talk. So uh, you're going to have to put up with that. And I may look some of you in the eyes to make sure. And there will, of course, be a short quiz afterwards. <laughs> so the moon, OK? The moon is my focus, OK? The talk is called Moon, Mars, Beyond, and Stars. So I'm going to start off by quoting the late lamented Douglas Adams. Space is big. It's very, very big. Here you can see on a logarithmic scale you know, the size of, of space around us in the galaxy. We start off with the solar system. We multiply by a factor of 10. We get to the heliopause. We get the Oort cloud. We get the edge of the cloud. And then we get our nearest star. And that's just the kind of local neighborhood in our, in our galaxy. So there are lots and lots of places we could go. There are lots and lots of places ultimately we could go and live. So the question is, where should we travel to? Okay. My answer to that question, the short one, is everywhere we can. Why would we not want to go there? Uh, you know, human beings have traveled all around the world, you know, even with very primitive forms of technology. Alan and I were just talking about that beforehand. Why would we not want to go anywhere we could? So I'm not saying that human beings should stop in low Earth orbit at the International Space Station. I'm not saying that we should go to the moon and stay there. I'm not even saying just Mars, okay? Not just the asteroid belt, okay? Not just other planets, not just the solar system, okay? Moon, Mars, beyond, and stars, okay, is what I'm saying should be our ultimate destination. But, okay, you know, it's not quite that simple. We can't go everywhere at once. Now, You know, as you've heard, you know, I'm from the British Interplanetary Society and also from the International Space University. The British Interplanetary Society has been thinking about space travel since the 1930s. And here on these slides, you can see some ideas of what we could do. We could travel into space, we could go and land on the moon. This is a study from the 1930s, so, you know, the BIS got quite a lot of things right there. Or this is the BIS design for an interstellar uh, uh, spaceship. Uh, Project Daedalus from the 1970s, so we've been looking about places we could go. But even when you look at these, you have to do things one at a time. Uh, If you want to travel to the stars using Daedalus, according to that study, the first thing you had to do was to build up a solar system economy, you had to travel out to Jupiter, you had to mine the atmosphere of Jupiter for for the helium-3 for the fusion engines. So you can't just go from a standing start to sending interstellar missions. At the same time, I also work for ISU. Who's from ISU here tonight? I know there's some of you. Wave your hands. Yeah, one there, one there. Yeah, four or five. Oh, good. good to see the ISU community here, you know. Stuart's brought his family, I presume, in a, in an attempt to sort of, you know, win the vote. <laughs> so I have the ISU family here to try and balance that out. So okay. So uh, good thing I did a bit of forward planning there. So ISU is famous for its team projects. We've been doing these for 30 years. Here you can see the covers of some of them. The first one is a recent study on a low Earth orbit interpla- uh, space station. The next one is looking at the moon as a source of resources. The next one is looking at going to Mars. And the last one is an interstellar world ship designed to carry 100,000 people to the nearest stars over a period of 4,500 years. So. We have the breadth of vision. We have also looked at where we might go and how we might get there. But again, you have to do these things in sequence. Where can we actually travel now? OK, if we're going to go off and colonize space, are we talking about doing it in 200 years, we are we talking about doing it in 200 days? There's a difference. That's a more difficult question to answer, I would say. You know, really, at the moment, if you want to do space travel, you need a rocket. There are other non-rocket propulsion systems, that's that's true, but most of them at the moment rely on rockets. Rockets need fuel to, uh, to carry them into space. If you're going to use the rockets in space, then at the moment you have to carry all the fuel that you're going to use in space up in a rocket from the surface of the Earth. So you need even more fuel. So I think, and I hope to convince you, that it would be sensible to go somewhere that is, one, easy to get to for a you know, relative value of easy, okay, and has fuel to enable further missions after that. You can see where I'm thinking. <laughs> this is a, a <laughs> tube map of the solar system. And although it's probably a bit small to see all the numbers clearly, what this shows you is the different velocities you need for the different manoeuvres to get to places. The more velocity you need, the more fuel you need. Now, uh, and it also takes different amounts of time. So if we start off with the moon, okay, what we kind of rocket scientists people call a delta V of about 5,700 actually that should say meters per second not kilometers per second that would be astonishingly high so <laughs> apologies for the typo the trip time is right though it's a, yeah roughly 3 days you know plus or minus a bit so if you look at Mars, OK, again, i put kilometers in, but 6,300 with a trip time one way of six months. So propulsively, it's about as easy to get to the moon as Mars, but it takes you six months to get to Mars and obviously six months to come back. And then in between, you have to wait for the correct alignment of the planets. depends precisely on the, on the mission you're doing. If you want to go further out, OK, so you want to go to Neptune. Who'd like to go to Neptune? Anyone? Nobody wants to go. I'd like to go to Neptune. I'd like to go everywhere, but you know, but if it's going to take 12 years, you know, I'm I'm 58 now. You know, 70. I might still be alive to get there, but I probably wouldn't be alive to make the return trip. Maybe just I could come back and say I've seen Neptune, you know, with my own eyes. And you know, 31 kilometers per second of delta v. So lots and lots and lots of fuel required if you want to go that far. So, if we're looking at places that are relatively easy to get to and close by, you know, well, what's this in our neighbourhood? It's the moon. You know, so this shows part of the moon. This shows the south pole of the moon. The uh, the blue areas are areas that, uh, using neutron spectrometry, we've been able to identify that there is hydrogen on the surface. Probably water. We can't be absolutely sure about that till we actually send a mission to sample it. But the point is you have potentially hyd- certainly have hydrogen, potentially water there. If you have water, okay, you can melt the water. You have water for human beings to drink. You can split it with electrolysis to make hydrogen and oxygen, which is rocket fuel. So straight away, you have a nearby place with its own supply of fuel. You don't have to take all the fuel there. What about the electricity you know, to, to do the splitting? Well, here at the South Pole, there are these areas that are sometimes called you know, the peaks of eternal light. It's not completely true. But what that means is that there are areas where the sun shines coming in from the side, where they are illuminated for about 95% of the year. So if you put solar arrays there, you can generate electricity almost continuously. So you have the electricity, you have the, the water, you can make the rocket fuel. It's a very good place to put a, to put a moon base. Other reasons for going to the moon. This, this place here, it looks like it might be on the moon, but it isn't. It's in Antarctica. This is a place called Concordia Station. Okay? And there you can see the, the happy crew of Antarctic noughts. So it's the most remote Antarctic research station there is. It's dark there for four months a year. Temperatures fall to minus 80 degrees centigrade in the winter. And because of its location, it's high up at about 3,200 meters. Uh, and the air is very cold. The oxygen content is very low. If you want to go outside, you have to bundle yourself up and put on suits and protective clothing. You know, Otherwise, you will likely die. As a result of this, it's used as, a, as a, what's called an analog. Uh, it's a place where you can practice being in space. Okay. Um, it's run by the European Space Agency and the Italian Research Agency. And people go down there, and they spend four or five months there. Now, some of my ISU students are doctors, and they have been there, and they have spent long periods of time there. And they say it is extremely difficult, psychologically, to survive those, to survive those four to six months down there in the isolation. And that's on Earth, where the air outside is actually breathable. Um, If we wanted to send people to Mars on a six-month journey, they would experience something similar. If we go to the Moon first, we can practice. And if anything goes wrong, we can be back home within three days. If you send people to Mars and anything goes wrong, six-month return journey, assuming everything works well. So one of the reasons for going to the Moon first is to practice being in space. Um, So, practice these things on the moon. Secondly, assuming we want to keep the people alive on these space journeys, if you don't, it gets much easier, uh, frankly, (laughs) but the publicity is not good. We need life support systems. You have to be able to keep people alive on long journeys, and you have to be absolutely sure that your life support system will not break down. You cannot really, on big space missions, send resupply. This is the International Space Station. I'm assuming most of you will recognize this. This has been in operation for just over a decade. And in that period, there have been about 110 Um, cargo missions, resupply missions, to take up water, to take up oxygen, to take up food, okay? This is not a self-sufficient space station. If we are going to send people off on long-duration space missions or have them live on other planets or, you know, live elsewhere, we have to get the self-sufficiency right, and at the moment we do not know how to do that. But we could practice that on the moon, you know? And again, If the life support system breaks down, you know, Amazon will deliver a repair. (laughs) I'll come back to that later. Or you bring the people home. So that's why, you know, we should go to the moon before we go to other places. Note again, I'm not saying we should not go to these other places. I'm just a member of the moon first party. Okay? We go to the moon first. So, life support system, if we're going to send humans into space for long periods of time, we have to keep them alive. Moon is the best place to practice this. Also, one thing that is in common, if they're not identical between the Moon and Mars, is the dusty surface. The, the dust on each of them is a little bit different, but they are both sharp, you know, abrasive, dusty environments. It's not good for human beings. You don't want that stuff in your lungs uh, for any length of time. You don't want it getting into your mechanisms, otherwise it will damage the gears. And again, we haven't practiced any of this. We've sent things to both environments where they've lived, lasted for a few years. But if you're talking about sending people out into deep space where the supply chain lines are very long, you have to have reliable mechanisms. So we can go to the moon, and we can practice you know, uh, this working in this environment on the moon. And then with what we know then, we can apply that to other missions, to, to asteroids uh, and, to, uh, and to Mars. So again, another good reason for going to the moon is to practice. you know getting our machinery to work in space. There are also commercial opportunities. These five vehicles, these are all vehicles which will go to the moon in the next two years. They are privately funded. Top left-hand one is the Space IL. That's an Israeli lunar lander. Uh, The one in the middle is the the, uh, astrobotic lander. The one on the right is is Moon Express. Uh, Bottom left there. Uh, You have part-time scientists, uh, Rover, and then the bottom right you've got the uh, Hakuto Uh, I-Space rover. These are all going to go to the Moon. Uh, Moon Express in the top right is the only one so far that actually has a license from its government to carry out a mission beyond Earth orbit. It is the first private space mission ever to achieve that. So all of these people think that there is money to be made by going to the Moon, and that's why they have uh, invested. And you will hear a lot more about these uh, coming up soon. But it's not just these. I mean, I mentioned Amazon. Okay... Um, all of you, I think, will have heard of Elon Musk and SpaceX. Um, he's uh, been in the news for all sorts of reasons lately. <laughs> uh, and, and Elon has done a very good job taking his initial money. Um, he's got a lot of big contracts from, from the US government for launching things to the space station. Uh, the poem of mine that was mentioned that went to the space station went on uh, a SpaceX uh, rocket and a SpaceX capsule, uh, you know, paid, for by, paid for by NASA. At the same time, you may or may not have heard of Jeff Bezos, who is the man who owns Amazon. You've probably heard of Jeff Bezos, you know, the richest man in the world. He spends his own money on developing space. Those rockets on the left are, you know, uh, his his ideas for the for the new Glenn heavy lift vehicle. He wants to go to the moon. He doesn't want to go to Mars. He wants to set up a, a colony there. Ultimately. He's quite happy to work with NASA, but he says if NASA don't want to work with him, he will do it on his own. And coming from a man who spends one billion dollars of his own money on spaceflight every year, okay, that's the sort of uh, you know credible sort of uh, you know uh, scenario. Uh, so uh, whether he will deliver packages to Amazon, whether we will have Amazon Prime Day on the moon, I, I wouldn't like to. I wouldn't like to speculate. Uh, Maybe he will land on Amazon Prime Day. That would—I just thought of that. Actually, that would be quite a good bit of publicity for Amazon, wouldn't it? Landing on Amazon Prime Day. Um, I, I should have kept that idea to myself. And uh, <laughs> yeah. damn, I'm never going to be a millionaire. So, so Jeff Bezos, okay, is planning its own lunar mission. You know, Blue Moon, imaginative name. By the early 2020s, so we're going to see a lot of commercial activity on the moon. We're not going to see that on other locations, Um, some of them. There's a lot of interest in asteroid mining, particularly in Luxembourg at the moment, mostly focused on water retrieval, again, for the reasons I mentioned earlier. Mars, mm, commercial missions to Mars, no. In fact, I had one of my master's students who spent a a lot of time and effort trying, because he was a real believer in, 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 in Elon, to find a way that you could commercially justify a mission to Mars. And in the end, after a year looking at it, he went, you know what? Can't be done, (laughs) not commercially. So in conclusion then, we should travel to Moon, Mars, and beyond, and stars. Ultimately, okay, that is what we should do. We should go off, and we should travel across the universe, and go to any of the places that we could. But we should start with the Moon. That's my case. Start with the Moon, because it's nearby. It's easy to get to in relative terms uh, compared to getting to other places. It has water and solar power. It can provide propellant for future rockets. It gives us a place to prepare and practice for longer missions, uh, particularly long duration human space operations, long duration life support, long duration effective low gravity, and also mechanical operations in these uh, abrasive environments. and it offers future commercial opportunities which will help build the infrastructure there. So, final message, vote Moon first. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Um, Next up is Stuart with Mars.
2: Good evening. I'm hoping some slides are going to appear in a moment. But um, just before I start, I should point out that you know Chris has spoken very eloquently about going to the moon. But frankly, the moon is just a rock. Al is going to tell us about going beyond. I don't know quite where he's going to endorse. But um, I'm pretty sure it's going to be difficult to get to. So I find myself as the advocate for Mars between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> So why Mars? Well, um, it's novel. Uh, With all due respect to Al and his uh, colleagues uh, in the Apollo program, we've already been to the moon. We've done that. Um, Mars is also, I think, far more interesting than the moon. What I'm going to hope to do um, in most of the talk is actually show you uh, a whole load of really interesting places that we might want to go and visit on Mars. There are clearly resources there that we can exploit. Chris has talked about um, the need to get things like water. And uh, it's actually even easier to get water on Mars. Um, Mars may also contain a record of the history of the solar system. We'd like to understand more about what's happened in the solar system over its lifetime. And on the Earth, there are agents of erosion, um, geological activity, and water uh, that makes it very difficult to understand the history, but Mars potentially has been uh, recording um, the history of the solar system for a long time. Uh, We might even find life, and at the end of the talk, uh, I'll explain a little bit about the possibilities of what we might find. And there's another reason, which I'm going to share with you right at the end. So uh, this is one of the things that got me into space. This is an artist's impression of a mission that was proposed to President Nixon by NASA in 1971. And what they hoped to do at that point was go to Mars in 1981. And as you see, we're still waiting. And there's a reason for that because, um, as Chris kind of alluded to, um, it's really, really difficult to go to Mars and bring people back. And it's also really, really expensive. So we haven't done this mission. There have been proposals to do something uh, slightly less ambitious. So this was a concept called Inspiration Mars. The idea was for a two-person crew, uh, a husband and wife, who were going to spend 500 days in a small inflatable capsule uh, doing a a loop around the back of Mars and coming straight back to the Earth, or or possibly a detour via Venus. Um, But um, uh, they weren't going to try to land. Now, I don't know about you and your partner, but... uh, (laughs) Mine's sat over there, so I've got to be very careful. Uh, But I don't know how many people would uh, like the psychological issues that Chris uh, related to stuck in a a very small compartment for um, 500 days. There are other concepts for going to Mars with people. Um, This was a concept for a reality TV show. Um, So the idea was to send people to Mars, but because the technical challenges are so great, they weren't going to try and bring them home. They were going to try and establish a colony on Mars. Now, those of you of a technical persuasion may think, hmm, they're on the surface of Mars, which is a very radiation-rich environment. And so, you know, if your idea of good TV is watching people dying of radiation sickness, then this is the show for you. So why do I think we ought to go to Mars? Well, one of the things that really fascinates me about Mars is that there are so many different terrain types, different features that we might want to explore on the surface. Some of them are illustrated here, and I'll show you a few more in slightly more close-up in just a moment. One of the things about Mars is that, like the Earth, it has seasons. This is uh, one of Mars's polar caps. Um, The polar caps increase and decrease in size uh, with the the seasons. And there is both water ice and carbon dioxide ice bound up in these polar caps, so the water just sits on the surface. If you need water, you can go and find some. If you zoom in on these polar caps, you can see some really astonishingly interesting-looking terrain. If you zoom in still further, uh, you're looking at uh, an image here, which is a few kilometers across. Uh, You can see the carbon dioxide ice and where it has started to uh, sublimate as the seasons are changing. There are even spiders on Mars, not biological spiders, but David Bowie was right. Um, Around the South Pole on Mars, uh, when the uh, carbon dioxide ice starts to heat up, it starts to uh, turn into a gas. It erupts through the surface and brings with it dust, which uh, makes these fan-shaped patterns on the surface. So just fascinating things to go and watch in action. There's a lot of evidence that there was flowing water on Mars once. I'll come back to that a little later in the talk. But there's huge canyons on the surface that we think were made once upon a time by flowing water. There are volcanoes. Now, you might look at that picture and say, that's not a volcano. That looks more like a crater. Well, allow me to show you the same picture up the other way. And I hope you'll agree that now it looks like it's sticking out of the screen rather than into it. It's an interesting optical illusion. We're used to seeing things illuminated from above, so our brains uh, automatically process those two images differently, even though they are exactly the same image upside down. There are all sorts of places with dunes. These are dunes at the bottom of one of the craters uh, on Mars. There are um, a whole variety of different types. Some of these pictures uh, involve not just optical data, but infrared data included as well. So they are false color images, but they're still amazingly interesting, and I think incredibly beautiful as well. Um, If I can persuade my wife, I'm going to stick some more of these up on the wall at home. (laughs) There are also impact craters that we might go and visit. There are obviously those on the moon, but I particularly like this particular Uh, impact crater because the image that was taken from space uh, has a very small uh, black dot just here, which is the Opportunity Rover sitting down on the surface, so uh, one piece of our technology imaged by another. Those rovers that we've put on the surface of Mars have given us amazing detail, Uh, so there are mineral veins running through Um, Some of the deposits on the surface strongly suggesting the presence of water in the past. And when you zoom right in on the rocks, there are interesting little um, things apparently sort of like growing in a sort of crystal type sense out of the rocks. Um, They all look almost like flowers, but they're almost certainly uh, just mineral growths. Mars isn't static. Um, There are things like avalanches happening on Mars. Um, The fact that we've been able to take pictures of these events more than once means that they happen pretty frequently. So Mars is a fairly dynamic environment. And there are even dust devils. We have them on the Earth. Um, The Martian atmosphere is very thin, so these wouldn't blow you over if they uh, encountered if you encountered one but we've seen them both from above with our satellites and from the rovers uh, down on the surface and when those dust devils move across some of the terrain they sift the sands around and you get incredibly interesting looking patterns these are the trails left by some of those dust devils Right. So the particular thing that I wanted to talk about to conclude uh, was about the possibility of finding life and the fact that we've found things we didn't expect at Mars. And it's one of the reasons why I would particularly like to go. So one of the gases in the atmosphere of Mars is methane. On the Earth, we know that there are sources of methane in volcanoes and from biological activity. It's possibly the same uh, on Mars. Uh, but we thought all the volcanoes stopped being active on Mars a very long time ago, which only leaves one very high probability um, idea left, which is that perhaps there's some bacterial life uh, living on Mars. Now, you might look at this picture and say, well, why does he say that? Because um, it appears that the major concentrations of methane are in and around the volcanic regions, and the reason why it's peculiar is that um, we see the methane in the atmosphere mostly in the summer and autumn, so it's a seasonal effect. And you wouldn't necessarily expect geological processes to be seasonal, whereas obviously the biological cycles that we're familiar with, things you know, are productive in the spring and summer and far less productive in the autumn and winter. Uh, so uh, there's a puzzle there that we don't understand, at least. Now, you may have seen some recent uh, press announcements from NASA saying that they have found organic chemicals using the Curiosity rover on the surface of Mars, and that rover has also measured the methane that we've uh, mapped from orbit. What's interesting about that methane that the rover has seen is that it has appeared as a burst and then disappeared again, which is also surprising because... Methane potentially would live in the Martian atmosphere um, for some tens of years um, until it would be broken down by the ultraviolet light that's coming from the sun. So the fact that it disappears much more quickly than that implies that it's being used up somehow, and we don't know how that might be. So one of the debates about whether you might find life on Mars is coloured by what you think about uh, the habitable zone about the Sun. And there is no good consensus on this at the moment. Uh, The image on the left um, shows uh, one impression of the habitable zone, which has the Earth in it, but Mars outside. Another diagram on the right actually puts Mars um, sufficiently close to the sun that, although perhaps the conditions right on the surface of Mars are um, too cold for liquid water to exist, maybe if you drill down into Mars a little way, it gets a bit warmer, and you might find water somewhere under the surface. We're not sure yet, but we're hoping to go and drill into Mars to find out. There was definitely water on Mars in the past, we think. This map of Mars shows the two hemispheres are very different. Uh, If you look at the bottom hemisphere, you'll see that it's composed of um, rocks that have an awful lot of impact craters in. The northern hemisphere, however, looks much, much smoother, implying that potentially it was protected from the bombardment of space by a liquid ocean at some point in the... Uh, past and what you're actually looking at there is the bottom of an ancient Martian ocean. If you make a 3D model of Mars and artificially flood it with water using a computer, you'll notice that the, the water largely runs to the northern hemisphere, so the topology supports that idea. And some of the measurements that we've made with rovers on the surface have found rocks that could only have been created in the presence of water. So the idea of water on the surface is fairly well established now. You can also see what looks like evidence of water uh, in these layers in the rocks on Mars. Um, The alternating light and dark bands were probably created in times when there was water present and water absent. And it's some of these layers that potentially record the history of the solar system for us. Now, whether we would actually find microbial life is open to question. Uh, The image on the left is a bacterial colony that you find on Earth called a stromatolite. Some people have rather um, courageously suggested that one of these structures seen on Mars on the right is an ancient stromatolite from Mars. Not sure I believe that one, but we might find bacteria. Uh, Another uh, Martian sample that generated an awful lot of discussion was this uh, rock in the top right. Um, It was found in Antarctica in a place called the Allen Hills. So it's known as the Allen Hills meteorite. Um, We can tell it was from Mars because there's little tiny pockets of gas trapped in the rock which match the Martian atmosphere. So this is a meteorite that was blasted off of Mars in a major impact in the past and eventually found its way to the Earth. When they examined that rock in very, very high detail with a a microscope, uh, they found uh, this little structure here, which some people thought looked like a little tiny Martian worm. The only problem is that that is a really, really tiny structure, much smaller than any of the bacteria that live on Earth. So I think the scientific consensus at the moment is that that's not life or even fossilized life, but you never know. So I gave you this list for why Mars, and I promised you one additional reason why we might want to go at the end. So I'd like you to use your imaginations now. Just supposing that Mars developed an ocean. And if it did develop an ocean, it would have done so before the Earth had one because Mars is further from the sun and it's a smaller body than the Earth. So it would have cooled down to the point where it could have had liquid water on its surface before the Earth had an ocean. We know there are impacts um, on Mars. So just suppose um, there were rocks with microbial life living in them that got blasted off of Mars by one of those impacts, and maybe um, that meteorite, with its little cargo of um, bacteria, might have found its way to Earth, where they might have found it a suitable environment and decided to evolve here into us. Could we all be Martians? And so, if we do mount a manned mission to Mars, might we be going home? Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. And last but not least, Al is going to take us beyond. And Thank
3: you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Ah, it's nice to come home. Welcome. Welcome, all you BIS people. Um, I guess what I have to say is what they've been telling you tonight is great, great stuff. But I think they missed the mark. Okay, Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, What is the prime imperative of any living creature here on Earth? What is the prime imperative? What is every species, what is every creature on Earth attempting to do? survive the species, right? That's what we're all about. We're all about survival. Now, you can go outside here and you can look at trees or grass or animals or anything you want that's biologically alive and it's doing everything it can to ensure that its species survives. Are we any different than that? I don't think so. So we can talk about going to the moon, we can talk about going to Mars, but I believe there's a little genetic drive in us that says we gotta figure out, hi hard, we gotta figure out how we can get someplace where we can live when we can't survive here on Earth anymore. Why do I say that? Why, why, why is that a problem? Because we're not gonna be able to live here forever. I mean, we are on a limited timeline here on Earth. We, unfortunately, <laughs> We're on the same limited timeline for the moon and Mars and and Neptune and Jupiter and Saturn and all of them because there will come a time when the earth, when the sun's gonna burn out all of its energy and when that happens, we're all gonna disappear, okay? So we gotta go somewhere else. Anyway, um, there there are other problems going to, well, the the moon's pretty simple. I uh, I, I think the suggestion that we put a, telescope on the moon is absolutely the greatest thing we could do at the moon. Okay, you could put a telescope on the backside of the moon, looking out into the universe. And I'm gonna show you some stuff that, that I saw when I was on my flight that have to do with the backside of the moon and looking out through the universe. Because it's pretty interesting, I gotta tell you. Anyway, let me get back to all of this. Uh, you see, you know, I had to get a marketing guy to do all this kind of funny stuff. Uh, <laughs> it's just so you would know how to spell my name, right? That's all, that, that's all that's for. Okay, I flew in 1971 on Apollo 15. The commander on the flight was David Scott. He had flown on Gemini 8 with Neil Armstrong and he flew on Apollo 9. He's the guy on the left up here. I assume this, that's, that's Dave there. Dave and I didn't get along. Uh, I could tell you about that later, but he's the guy with the red stripes. Uh, that's me in the middle and Jim Irwin on the right. Uh, and Jim and I were making our first flight on Apollo 15. And it turns out we, that was our last flight uh, because they canceled the program. Uh, so 16, 17, and 18 got canceled um, and there was no opportunity to fly again. So we, uh, we, we made one, Jim and I made one flight and and, and Dave uh, made a couple. Now. We went to the moon on July 26, 1971. It's about a three and a half day trip going to the moon. We had to leave Earth at 25,000 miles an hour and that was the speed or the velocity we needed to get to a point between the Earth and the moon where the moon's gravity became greater than the Earth's gravity and then we were subject to that gravity and it pulled us into the backside. remember Apollo 13 when they did that free return? Well, that's exactly what happened. They got up there, the moon's gravity, pulled it around the backside of the moon and headed them back home. We, a little differently, in the backside of the moon, slowed down just enough to stay in orbit. So it's just a question of, uh, of changing uh, the velocity a little bit. Now, on our flight, which was different than anything that had gone before us, we carried the first lunar rover, the little electric car that they drove on the surface, and we also carried a scientific instrument module in the lunar, in the, in the service module, uh, which you can see here, this is an open bay. And that was kind of interesting because we we had to get rid of the, uh, of, of the covering for this sim bay before we got to the moon. And that was kind of a touchy situation because if that cover had not come off, we could not go into lunar orbit. If something happened more than just taking the cover off, then we would not be able to go into lunar orbit. So there are all kinds of things that could happen except that, the result was always the same, we come back home. You know, we wouldn't go into lunar orbit. So we had to make sure, and everything worked for us. Uh, the explosive bolts uh, fired. Uh, the cover came off the sim, what we call the SIM bay, Scientific Instrument Module. Uh, and so you op- see this open bay that we have here. And that's kind of interesting in that we had a couple of cameras, uh, had a lot of remote sensing devices too, which I won't go into, but we did have two cameras. One was a high-resolution camera uh, that we had inherited from the old U-2 program. If you remember the spy plane that we used to fly, uh, called a U-2, it had a camera that was designed for it back in the late 50s, and it was a high-resolution camera, declared obsolete, we were able to carry it on our flight uh, with, a, with a provision that we would never point it at Russia for some reason. Uh, I, I never did figure that out. Uh, <coughs> It's okay from 60,000 feet, not to point a camera at Russia, right? But from 240,000 miles away, I'm not sure that there was anything there that we could see. Anyway, we had that, and we had a mapping camera, and I actually mapped about 25% of the lunar surface. That's not what I want to talk about. I'm going to talk about what else we did while we're up there. Um, Going around the moon, we went into an orbit of about 60 miles, spent the night, and I I, I won't go into the uh, details of the gravitational constants of the moon that messed up our flight, because we almost had a big problem. Uh, well, I might as well. Now that I mentioned it, I might as well tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, we went into, we. Our landing site was very different from any others. We went to a landing site that was 28 degrees north of the lunar equator. All the flights before ours had gone into landing sites within 10 degrees of the lunar equator, because we knew the gravitational constants there. We did not know the gravitational constants up at 28 degrees, so we were. T- on a little bit of a, of a, of a risky, uh, chance-taking thing. Uh, and we made it even more so by altering our orbit so that Dave and Jim would have more fuel uh, to help them land. So what it, what we did is I, I put us in an orbit that was 60 miles high at the back side of the moon and 50,000 feet over the landing site. 50,000 feet, 10 miles, right? 60 miles in back and 10 miles right in, right over the landing site. Dave had to fly over a mountain, Hadley Mountain, which is at 28 degrees, uh, which was 15,000 feet high. So we were like 35,000 feet over the top of that mountain. Okay, We spent the night, got up the next morning, pulled the shades off the window. That's how you tell night and day up in space, incidentally. Uh, you, you put shades up at the window to block out the sun. That becomes night. And then in the morning, when you get up, you pull the shades out and it's, all of a sudden it's daylight. Uh, so anyway, I did that. I looked ahead, and I'm looking up at the top of the mountain. And I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> we're, we're, we, got a, we got a big problem. So I called Houston, and they said, oh, we're so glad you called. And I said, <laughs> "I said why, why is that? And they said, well, we think you're getting a little close to the top of that mountain. Okay, tell me, how close are we now? This is where I'm going to put these two guys on the spot. Okay, so they come back and they say okay, you've been dropping in your orbit every revolution all night long and we now have you at 33,000 plus or minus nine. (laughs) Now any engineer, if somebody tells you, if somebody gives you the result to a problem, to a question that has a plus or minus, then the very first thing you know is they don't know what they're talking about, (laughs) right? Because otherwise, they wouldn't put the plus or minus on the damn thing, right? So anyway, we figured we're down about 24,000 feet. Top of that mountain was 15,000 feet, so we went over about 9,000 feet. We were less than two miles above the top of that mountain. So this is kind of the things that you do when you're going to a new place that you've never been before, because lots of things can happen, and the thing that got us going to the moon was mass cons, mass concentrations that changed the local gravity of the moon, in our trajectory at least, at 28 degrees. And it pulled it's, it, it. pulled us down in our orbit uh, to the point where we had very quickly get Dave and Jim going. And I'm gonna tell you a little secret about, I mean, this has got nothing to do with going moon, Mars, and beyond, right? But I thought you might find it kind of interesting. Um, I got Dave and Jim in the lunar module and got them on their way, and I had to go back into a 60 mile orbit, so I had to do that behind the moon <coughs> where I was at 60 miles, and I added just enough velocity to pull up the front side of my orbit up to 60 miles. We had three couches in the spacecraft, one, one you know, left, center, and right. We had taken the center couch out to give us a little extra room. The outside couches were mounted on shock absorbers that were, th- that were not fixed, they were on a swivel, okay? So the seat on one side could swing into the, into the interior of the spacecraft. I never gave it a thought, but I, but, but I initiated the, the, the maneuver uh, to add velocity, and when that uh, service propulsion system engine fired, uh, to add the velocity I needed to go back to 60 miles, all of a sudden my, coach, my couch, couch was like this, and I'm looking out the side window, and I'm thinking, oh my God, You know, I couldn't reach anything. I couldn't reach the switch. It was a good thing the computer worked and that's something we gotta make sure when we go to Mars that the computer works. We don't want any Hal's (laughs) on board, okay? We don't need that. We need something that's really gonna work. Anyway, um, what I focused on a lot when I was in lunar orbit was Things around the universe, uh, I took lots and lots of low light devil uh, photographs. If any of you know what uh, Lagrange points are, uh, I took photographs of Lagrange points four and five, and they're real, there is a, there is a big cloud of dust there in each of those. Uh, they are stable, for you who don't know, the Lagrange points four and five are stable equilibrium points between the Earth and the Moon. And, and that could be very valuable. And I think one of the best things we could do with, this, with the International Space Station is move it up to L5. That'd be a great thing. We could go to Mars from there very easily. Anyway, we did a lot of low-light level photography, uh, uh, L4 and L5, and also the Gegenschein, which is a loose, unconsolidated uh, uh, bunch of asteroids beyond uh, Pluto, uh, which um, are very hard to see from here from Earth. Um, it got me thinking about all of this stuff that I saw. Got to thinking about what the earth's all about, where we are in relationship to things around us, uh, what the universe is like, how we fit into the universe. So I've done a little, you know, and I, and I, and I kind of conjured up some of this stuff for the talk tonight uh, because I think it's very interesting. Here's, an, here's the original view of what, the, what, what our solar system is all about. This is the old Egyptian Ptolemaic system which had the earth at the center of the universe. Okay, and everything went around the earth. You'll see in this picture here, even the sun is going around the earth. That's what they thought back then. That was was the general concept back in the day. And then uh, a a very clever astronomer uh, named Copernicus changed that view and he figured it out. He understood that the sun was in the center of the solar of the of the universe. Well, that's the one mistake. he mean, he had the sun as the center of the universe. He didn't really pull it into just the solar system, but he had it as a, as, as the uh, center of of, of of the universe. Now, <clears throat> now I want to get back to where I was um, in in lunar orbit because because that's where most of my thinking was at the time. Um, I went around the moon 75 times, and there was a, an area, a, a section of the moon, of the orbit around the moon, uh, where I was shadowed from both the sun and the earth, okay? So I was in, as far as solar systems concerned, I was in complete blackness. Uh, the only thing I had at that point was starlight. which was absolutely mind-blowing because I could see the horizon of the moon in terms of the starlight that was cut off, not because anything was shining on it. I could see stars that I never thought were possible. It was unbelievable. Here's that place uh, where we're shadowed from both the earth and the sun, okay? Now, uh, I gotta get to a few numbers. I, I mean, this is, I think, fairly straightforward, but uh, if you if you count all the stars that you can see through the atmosphere here on Earth, I think the number is 10 to the 6, about a million stars, okay? Uh, when I was in this shadowed area where I was shadowed from both the er- Earth, see the Earth, there's no shine from the Earth, but it's called albedo, it's just reflection from the sun, which is almost as bright as the sun is. So, But in that place there where I shadow for both the earth and the sun, we could see a million times as many. A million times as many stars from there as you can see through the atmosphere. So you could start adding up the numbers. Ten to the six stars if you look through the atmosphere, another ten to the six if you look past the atmosphere, ten to the twelfth number of stars that you can see. Now that's from the naked eye, but... If you're really looking hard, here's here's what the universe out there looks like from the from from, from the moon. I, I could not get a real picture of what I saw because there's there there's not one available, okay? But what you're seeing here is mostly galaxies. There are a lot of stars in here too, but this is mostly galaxies. But what I wanted to show you was the galaxy that we live in. And this has so much to do with the number of uh, of stars and 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 and, and objects that we can we can see from here. Uh, as I said, we can see about 10 to the six stars. We don't see all the stars in, in, in the Milky Way in which we live because we need telescopes to do that to do it well. Uh, you can see 10, about 10 to the six stars if you look through the through the sky but the numbers of the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy in which we're a part, is on the order of 400 billion, 400 billion stars. Now that turns out to be four times 10 to the 11th, if you wanna multiply out the 10th. <laughs> Steve, you're with me, thank you. <laughs> that, that's, that, that gets to be a big number. That's a pretty big number. We are about two-thirds of the way out. You know, you know if, you, if you were to look at the Milky Way from top, it's like a starfish. And it's slowly rotating, and the and 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 each of the each of the arms are curling back, in a, you know away from the direction that is that's rotating, and we're about two thirds the way out on one of those arms, uh, but that's the Milky Way, and we're talking a considerable number of stars, right? Okay, that's peanuts compared to what the Hubble sees. The Hubble sees out into the universe um, about another 10 to the 12th, okay? So we're looking at, and, 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 and what the Hubble sees is mostly galaxies, not just individual stars. So each of these pinpoints you look at are kind of, uh, of galaxies uh, that include probably 400 billion stars, each of them. Unbelievable, the numbers. I mean, the numbers are just mind-blowing. Uh, okay, the Milky Way. Uh, let's say three times 10 to the 11 stars, okay? Visible galaxies, two times 10 to the eleven stars. I know these numbers don't mean anything because they're so doggone big. They don't mean anything. But the point is that if you add all this up, you put it all together, there's something like 10 to the 22nd power stars that we can see in the universe, that we can see. That is not the number of stars in the universe because we run out of power to see stars out a certain distance. We just can't see beyond a certain distance. You know, what's interesting is that the stars on the leading edge of the universe as it's expanding are going pretty close to the speed of light. So if they're shining back this way, that light thing is stopping and we're never seeing it. So we can only see so far anyway. So we don't know what's out there. Anyway, with all those stars out there, you gotta ask yourself, what's the probability? Now, I was I, a very good friend, Carl Sagan, and you all know who he was. Very, very good astronomer and and writer and and storyteller, and he was, he was a wonderful guy. Uh, if any of you saw the movie Contact, that was his movie. That's, that was his story. And it followed a central theme that Carl uh, 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 talked about all his life. And that was that there's potential for life out there because there's so many stars, and of those there are going to be so many that are going to be the size of our sun, and I forget what they're, the G through K, or whatever whatever the sizes are, and of those are gonna be so many uh, 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 planets that are uh, me- uh, metallic, like the Earth, uh, and of those are gonna be so many that have an atmosphere and water, and, you can go, and no matter what, what percentage you put on all those, you always end up with a positive number. So Carl was absolutely convinced that there is life out there. Now, what's interesting is that the life out there is gonna be dependent, how, how intelligent species grow is gonna be dependent on the planet that they're on. Because if the planet doesn't have, let's say, the gravity that we have here, then they can grow very thin structures and they don't have to work under the gravity we have. If the gravity is heavier, than uh, greater than what we have here, then they're gonna be stubby people, and they're gonna be strong and they're, they're, they're gonna to adapt to the gravity that they're that they're living in. So that's kind of the, uh, um, the outlook um, and, I, and I guess I sort of feel like we have such short-range ideas about things, but I think going back to the moon is absolutely essential. Going back to Mars or going to Mars is going to be absolutely essential. Not to go there, not just to go there, but to, de- but to develop the technology to get there. That's going to be the key to everything. We have an Earth-like planet. Um, It's um, 4.2 light years away. Uh, It's uh, out by uh, Alpha Centauri. Um, I forget what it's called now, it's, uh, what is it Steve, Palumbo B or something? I don't know. Anyway, 4.2 light years away, right? It's a planet like Earth, with the same kind of characteristics as Earth. It's, they don't know that, that, that we could survive on it yet, but it's something that they're looking at very carefully. Do you know the name of that planet, Chris? That's out there? Okay. Um, uh, but, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on the spot. If I can't remember it, I don't know why anybody else should. Um, if we could get out there, it's 4.2 light years away. At our present ability to go into space, it would take us 40,000 years to get there. 4.2 light years. So in my mind, a couple of things. We're gonna find a place eventually where where the human species can go and live, right? When our our sun burns up and this is no longer viable, And that might be a billion years from now, but it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, no question about it, if we don't kill ourselves off in the meantime. Um, Couple of things, one is we're gonna have to be able to develop a method of maintaining people alive for long periods of time. That's gonna be one critical thing. And the other is we're gonna have to develop a propulsion system that gets us going faster than the speed of light. Now everybody thinks thinks that, that that's a crazy thing to say Um, I've been around maybe too long but I very clearly remember the day when we were all convinced that you could not go through the sound barrier and maybe many of you remember those days but we were told we could not go faster than the speed of sound and we do it every day today we do it all the time Uh, now we're told because of Einstein's theories uh, that we can't go faster than the speed of light, and I guess I I, I guess I have a problem with that kind of, that thought process, because I feel that someday somebody's going to figure out how to how to resolve the equations, and we're going to be in a position where we can build something that'll take us faster than the speed of light. Once, we, well, Star Trek's right around the corner, right? We start going warp 10 to get somewhere, then all this stuff is uh, you know just talk, and uh, we'll go someplace else. I'm going to leave you with one thought. Uh, Because I think I probably talked too long, but I want to leave you with this thought: If we're, if some of us are thinking about finding a place out there where we can sustain the human species, how do you think we got here? Just an idea, just a question for you to think about. Thanks.
4: Okay.
0: So thanks to all three of our panellists. This is going to be a hard decision to make. I thought I would point out that Carl Sagan actually did a Christmas lecture here in this very theater. Um, So we're going to do a quick Q&A session um, with you all, so you have the chance to ask our panellists some questions about what has been discussed, maybe something else you want to bring up, and then we'll have a vote afterwards.
4: Uh, Hello. Um, just thank you to the panelists for uh, talking to. It was uh, fascinating. Um, could they give a time frame? I know it's going to be a guess for each of their suggestions So, to, for when we'll get to the moon, to Mars and beyond. A uh, rough guess to make basically. Well, to
1: go back to the moon, human being on the moon, you mean? Mm. Yes. Within the next decade. Five years to eight
2: one of Mars Yeah, Mar- Mars will take a bit longer. We might do a, a journey around Mars and perhaps visit one of its moons um, in maybe 15 or 20 years to actually land on the surface. Um, could be done in that sort of time frame as well, but you wouldn't bring people back, um, you know, so maybe <laughs> 2035, 20, 2040, 20, right. to do a mission where you could actually bring people back. I think we... We'd either have to take a decision to use different propulsion technology. There are concepts for nuclear rockets which would provide a lot more energy and make things happen a lot quicker, but um, that's a political decision rather than a technical decision. Assuming we don't make that sort of decision, I don't think people will walk on Mars until about 2050.
3: You know, it's interesting you say that, Sue, because I remember when I was in the program working out of Houston that NASA had a... A request for applicants to go to Mars. And it was very clearly stated in the application process that it was a one way trip. Okay? And they had at least a thousand applicants. Mm -hmm. People were willing to go to Mars and stay there, not come back. And there were lots of people who were willing to do that. Be pretty famous, I guess. Absolutely.
2: Well, the entrepreneur Elon Musk has said he wants to die on Mars, so um, maybe he'll get his chance. Maybe
3: he will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, uh, if, you're, if, if you really want to ask um, how long it would take for what I'm talking about, um, I don't know. I'll give you 100,000 years or more. It's going to take a long time, and it's going to take some dedicated research and development to do that too. So we're, we're along, I'm a long ways down the road from you guys. You're going to get there long, <laughs> long ahead of me, a long time ahead of me, yeah. Um,
0: question over here.
4: Um, hi, uh, thanks for the lecture, all of, all of you. I was just uh, wondering what you think about maybe implementing photonic uh, propulsion systems. Um, and I was just wondering if it may have changed your opinion on which would be the best planet to actually inhabit, considering it could be a, I don't know, a quite useful um, way to travel to space.
1: When you say photonic propulsion systems, do you mean laser-propelled launch, or do you mean uh, yeah, in space? so actually
4: using the momentum of photons to actually move the rockets, also using mirrors as well. Well, I, I mean it's it's a
1: propulsion system, but it doesn't radically, you know, transform things. You can maybe get between planets in the solar system more quickly, but uh, you've still you've still got long travel times uh, in, in relative terms, so I'm still in favour of going to the place that's closest first.
2: Yeah, I mean, the propulsion planets. issue the is, is... is the <laughs> <laughs> The propulsion issue is just one of the things that you'd have to look at. I mean, when you start to consider, um, you know, other venues like perhaps you know some of the really interesting moons that go around Jupiter. Um, the thing you've got to remember, it's not just getting there, it's surviving the radiation that Jupiter has. So, um, yeah, propulsion might change the game a bit, but you've still got a lot of other pro- uh, problems to solve.
3: You know, it's kind of interesting because when you go to the moon, we, we didn't really <laughs> have the radiation problem, because we had a, there's a magnetosphere that kind of protects between the Earth and the moon you got to go through the Van Allen Bell, but we, were, we that was a short-term thing, and we were okay with that. When we go to Mars, we're going to be exposed to absolute total radiation from the sun, and that's going to be a tough thing because the, that solar radiation will go through just about anything, and I'm not sure. I've heard lots and lots of, uh, uh, of ideas uh, about how to insulate yourself from solar radiation on the way to Mars, but none of them seem practical to me, so I... I don't know. Maybe maybe you know more about it. uh, What we can do (coughs) than I do, but it just seems to me like that's a huge problem.
2: Yeah, and there's there's some exotic ideas about um, uh, concepts a little bit like the shields um, in Star Trek, where you would put a sort of magnetic cloak around your spacecraft. But it's not easy to do, and it takes a lot of power. And that's one of the reasons why the Mars One illustration that I showed you uh, is a work of fiction because, basically, if you try and live on the surface of Mars, you'll die very quickly. Um, The only way to live, really, on the Moon or on Mars um, or, indeed, in a long-term space flight is is to protect yourself from the radiation. And on one of the, the bodies that we've been talking about, the answer is either to dig a hole or possibly to live in a hole. There are sort of structures like lava tubes on both the moon Mm -hmm. and we think on Mars. So there may be pre-made holes if you like that were created by the geology there and that would be the safest place to try and live.
3: And I've also heard that the suggestion has been made uh, that uh, there are certain material that would be better used as insulation than to fertilize potatoes.
1: <laughs> that, that, that was that was yeah. part of Who the uh, <laughs> that was part of the plan for the husband and wife machine. <laughs> that you uh, that you you took this material and you used it as a coating because one of the things that does protect against radiation is hydrogen. So either you have your water tanks, or you have water-rich substances, or you have hydrogen, or you have something like polypropylene that's got a lot of hydrogen mm-hmm. in it, and you wrap that around the kind of habitation areas. Um, I know which I would choose, <laughs> <laughs> or which I wouldn't.
3: But. but you mentioned husband and wife. That's good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that could get very messy. Um, do we have any questions from the gallery?
4: Um, I very much enjoyed the uh, speech that you are given. Uh, I'm not so much in debating with uh, the moon first or Mars first. We've got to do both. Moon, I think, is nearer. But I think it's the geopolitical thing that's uh, most important. We haven't been back for 45 years. There must be a reason for that. We went in the 1960s. There was a reason for that. I'm looking at a picture now of a space shuttle in a museum. There's a reason for that. There seems to be little uh, will from politicians. I heard uh, Jim Bidenstein yeah. recently said, it's not going to be Lucy in the football um, again. We are going to do it. Uh, but uh, going back to the moon, and especially to Mars, is going to take successive US administrations. Are they going to keep the pace for 30, 40, 50 years to get us there?
1: I think it's a mistake to think it will necessarily be the USA that puts the next human beings on either Not, planet.
4: The USA leading the, 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 with Russia, I mean, tonight is 43 years since the Apollo-Soyuz docking.
1: Take a look at what China is doing.
4: Yeah. If they get onto the moon... Then it's Sputnik all over again. Perhaps it might move us uh, space race
2: 2.0. Yeah, I mean you um, you've seen uh, some of the publicity from Elon Musk's uh, you know activities in space, where he's put one of his Tesla um, sp- uh, cars uh, into orbit. Um, so there are entrepreneurs that think um, that they have enough money and resources, like Jeff Bezos, to do some pretty amazing things. I would agree with Chris that you know, they're probably uh, it's easier to get to the moon, Um, but you might see people trying to put together one-way trips, Um, you know, and because it's an individual taking the decision, you don't have to get that political buy-in, you know. If you're rich enough and you want to do it and you've got the money, you can direct the funding as you choose.
1: If there's anybody out there with that level of money, (laughs) please come and see me afterwards. (laughs) I think there's there's something
3: wrong with a whole... But, or the whole concept of civilian space program, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Sierra Nevada, and those guys. I, I think there, there's something wrong with that whole concept. They're not, the only one that's real civilian program is Jeff Bezos. The rest of them are all supported by the government. So what's the difference between given SpaceX $4 billion and taking that $4 billion and getting a contractor to build it for you under, light, under, under contract. Uh, see, uh, to me, the only difference is government inefficiency. And I think that's a big, I think that's a big point. Uh, the other thing is that the, and, and in fact, the reason that Musk is, and Boeing both are having a lot of problems right now is that they can't meet the safety requirements for their spacecraft. So that's another thing. If you're gonna do a government program And thank God it was that way when I was in it that the most important thing thing was our safety. And Mm -hmm. I'm just not so sure that a a private entrepreneur going into space is going to be that dedicated to the safety of the crew as the government is. So I I, I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag, but I don't see them as civilian entities, especially Elon Musk, because he gets all his pay from the government. Mm -hmm. The government's paying him to do what he's doing.
4: Can I ask Colonel Warden one last question? Uh, When you did the EVA, first uh, cislunar EVA, did you get any sensation of vertigo looking at the Earth uh, from 200,000 miles? What about it? Looking (laughs) down 200,000 miles to the Earth. I mean, that's a high place to be. Did you do an EVA? Oh, yeah, I did an EVA. Yeah, I got outside. Sure. Yeah, did you get any sensation of vertigo
3: looking at the moon and looking at the earth? Huh? Did you get vertigo? Did you get
4: Oh, oh, oh!
3: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My hearing's not what it used to be. Um, uh, did I get vertigo? No, absolutely not.
4: What was never it like got, to, never to, got do, motion
3: sick during flight. None of us did. No, no, on I didn't mean
4: that. What was it like to see both the mm-hmm. earth and the moon at once? Yeah, I could see them both. The yeah, what earth was and it like? Moon. How did you feel? How did you feel to be able to see both of them (laughs) at once?
0: Um, So we're going to move on to the next person because we're going to (laughs) run out of time otherwise. So um, we'll pass the mic to this gentleman here. And is there one over here? And then behind.
2: We've uh, managed to know that we can have man going to the moon. If we go to Mars, have we got the capability of having man inside a spacecraft and survive the solar rays? So in other words, not going outside onto the surface, and just staying in the, the spacecraft.
1: Well, first of all, I'd to say I hope it won't just be men; women too. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the the rest is 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 a, is a matter of you know of, of, of technology, um, and and what you want to do when you get there. Um, I think, basically, you you can do a lot of things, but it it depends what you decide to do and what you have money to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would second that. Um, One of the reasons why the technical challenge of going to Mars is so great is that in order to do the protection that, you know, Al was talking about, you would have to dedicate quite a lot of the, the launch mass of your spacecraft to actually making some sort of effective shielding system for your... Astronauts, and that's why it's difficult. You could send a very flimsy vehicle there, you know, in a very short time frame, but the people probably would be dead when they arrived, and that's not a good answer.
3: So. Let, me, let, me, let me make another comment about going to Mars. We do not have a vehicle under design, uh, constructed, tested, uh, that can make the round trip to Mars. We do not have that vehicle in hand. We have what's called the Orion, which will take four astronauts, I think, well, maybe six. For a short period of time, it takes six and maybe four for an extended time in space, which that extended time is about two weeks. We're talking a year and a half going to Mars and back, and we're talking about the Orion going for a couple of weeks out in deep space with four guys, or four astronauts, could be women too, which, incidentally, do you folks know... All the talk in Houston today is about the first crew to land on Mars. Did Anybody hear anything? They're talking about being an all woman crew. They are serious. Okay, girls. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyway, we do not have a vehicle that come come back from Mars at the speeds that are required to go to Mars. It will not reenter the atmosphere. It'll either burn up or skip out, but it will never be able to come through the atmosphere. This is one of the big stories being told to everybody, and I know there's some workarounds. But instead of doing the job, we're working around it, not really addressing. Well, we're 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 we're, <laughs> we're solving the symptoms and not the problem. Okay, and there and there are reentry vehicles that have the L over D to come back through the uh, atmosphere at 45,000 kilometers per hour. Uh, I think that's the number, 35,000 miles per hour, something like that. Uh, But there are shapes that'll do that, but the Orion can't. It's only got an L over D of 0.27, and it just can't do it. That's right. Uh, uh, Apollo was right at the limit of what you could ask a a spacecraft to do coming back from the moon at 25,000 miles per hour. Uh, But when you come back from Mars and you're doing 35,000 miles per hour, that lift to drag in that spacecraft is not good enough to allow you to slow down in the atmosphere and come on in. You're going to have to you're going to have to do something else.
0: Sorry. Okay, so we have oh. time for one more question. Um, How would you propose um, to travel to Mars? Would you install like a series of depots? Um, from between the Earth um, on the, uh, and Mars and to, re- to refuel and sort of resupply the ships? Or would you have one, one single rocket trip to Mars?
2: I guess that question's probably directed me initially. Yeah. So... Um, Al made reference to the Lagrange points, which are gravitationally stable points. You potentially could launch some supplies in advance, but most of the even remotely credible um, ideas for going to Mars assume that you would send robotic vehicles initially to establish um, depots uh, on the Martian surface, some of the stuff that you would need so that you didn't have to take it all with you in your crewed vehicle. And then... Um, you know, we've spent some time discussing how long it takes to get to Mars, so um, the sort of energy efficient route takes you about nine months, but there are faster trajectories that might lessen the amount of radiation, and if you didn't have to take all of your food and all of the water and things that you would need because some of it was waiting for you on Mars, you could take a faster trajectory. So. Um, Conceptually, there would be sort of like depots waiting for you when you got there, is is one of the sort of more credible but still difficult things you could try and do. Thank
0: you. Mm -hmm. So, thank you very much, everyone, for your questions. And we're now going to go to the voting stage. So, if we can bring up our Mentimeter slide. X. I think
2: Chris is cheating. He's voting for himself. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, Chris, how, how, <laughs> <hey, laughs> how many times have you voted now? I can, I can uh, once. It looks to me like it's 118 times. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so we've
0: still got votes slightly trickling in, but I, I feel like we can officially declare the winner as the moon.
3: Yay. There we go.
0: Woo. Round yeah. for the moon. Go, <laughs> Moon. I hope you enjoyed it and continue coming to our events. So thank you very much and have a good evening. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. And if you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks!